0: My wife does not know this, but I am holding her recipe book. This is it, right here. Which she's never actually seen me do. Um, so there's a lot of recipes in here. Um, she'll see them and she'll cut them out and put them in, get them from friends, I suppose. And, and uh, they go in here and there's some winners in here. There's a lot of things in here. Um, a, lot of, a lot of things. But there's recipes. And you know what recipes are. They're, uh, recipes tell you how to make something. The challenge is, I'm not a cook. So I can follow a recipe and produce something that looks about right, you know, if it's a simple enough recipe, but I'm not a cook because I, really have, I don't have a strong grasp for the nature of how things are working. In other words, I'm beneath the recipe. I obey the recipe, which means I'm not a cook. Versus the person who wrote the recipe. Now that's amazing really amazing to me that out of the mind of someone they would be able to grasp the relationships of these ingredients and how to bring them together in the right measure and time and sequence and temperature and how to present it in a way that is attractive to the eyes and, and then it's good to eat like That that's a cook my wife is a cook and I, I follow a recipe my wife is a cook and one thing I know and I can't find it right now I closed it and I can't find it we have it's just proof. Ah, the best one in the book: brown sugar oatmeal cookies. Now we've never actually baked these; we just eat the dough. But <laughs> had we baked them, they would have been the best cookies ever. These. Now you're saying to yourself, in, in, "There's a thousand oatmeal cookie recipes; that they're all essentially the same." That's true if you follow the recipe, but something happened, and my wife is a cook it calls for two cups of packed dark brown sugar. Well, we didn't have dark brown sugar one time. We had light brown sugar, which for me, I would have missed that nuance. But she didn't. And in her mind, she said, well, what I'll do is I'll add a couple teaspoons of molasses into the brown sugar. See, I can't do that. It's brilliant. This it is out of control. <laughs> this is our secret recipe that no one else knows. Uh, but the, what I'm saying is, some people are beneath the recipe and they just do the steps. They're not really doing it. And then there's other people who the recipe's a friend to them. The recipe's helpful to them but they're not beneath it, and they're really doing it. You'll see this in relationships. You'll have this classic example of, you know, the wife will say about the husband, she'll say, he never says he loves me. Just doesn't ever say he loves me, or, or, or he likes how I look. He just doesn't give me those, those compliments. And then someone will say, well, do you think he loves you? I know he loves me, he just doesn't say he loves me. And someone might say to them, well, why don't you tell him that? And she might say, well, I don't want to tell him that he needs to say he loves me because then it ruins it. You don't want to give the recipe because you want to make sure it's real. And if I say, well, if you really love me, you'll do this, 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 this. How do I know? He's not going to go, okay, check, 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 check. Now are you happy? That's the risk. But on the other side, you have somebody who really loves her. And he'd be like, don't you love her? And he'd be like, of course I love her. I said I love her. At the wedding, I said I love her. <laughs> like, in front of everybody. Why are we debating this? You know, but you'd be like, you know, you could say it again, buddy. What I'm saying is, is you, there's times where we, you don't want to give the recipe out of the danger that it might become perfunctory. But there's other times when someone doesn't know how to do something and they can't show it unless you give them some sort of pattern. And for us, it's that way with confession. We do not know how to do confession. We're not born knowing how to do it. And so the Lord, the Lord in his word, gives us examples, examples of good confession and prayer, kind of like a recipe, kind of a way of offering up a pattern. He's extending it to us because he knows it's not in our nature, it's not in our DNA to be truly repentant and sorry for the things we've done, so he's going to show us some good examples, but his desire is not that we would become perfunctory about it, that we would kind of take the recipe and go, check, 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 I'm forgiven, That's not what he wants. And so, this morning, as we look at this wonderful pattern of confessional prayer, I want to offer it to you. Like, in the name of God, As here's a way it's done well. But with the encouragement of, when you do it, really do it. Don't just go through the steps. Okay, so, we're in Daniel 9. Last week, we kind of, we worked on the concept of repentance with regards to becoming aware of our sin and our wrongdoing, and then the notion of how does grace, God's grace and forgiveness live next to consequences, because we know we're forgiven, but there's earthly consequences, and so we talked briefly about how the grace and forgiveness of God heals the disunity between him and us for eternity, that the consequences we have now in our life are momentary. Flashes in the pan when compared to the restored relationship that God has for us. That's where his grace and forgiveness work. And, and there's consequences alongside. This morning, I want us to, to look through the life of Daniel at what a heart of repentant confession looks like. And I'm going to probably say confession more than repentance this morning. I don't really think they're different. I think a genuinely confessional heart is repentant. I'd rather not break the concept up. Okay, Daniel, chapter nine. And by the way, I'm getting over a little cold. I'm emotionally thin. So, I'm sorry already. Okay, chapter nine, verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son Ahasuerus, by descent, Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70. Okay, this is the setting here. Daniel is saying that somehow he has gotten a hold of the book of Jeremiah, the scrolls of Jeremiah. Now, Daniel, it's important to understand, when Israel was destroyed and, or defeated, they brought, there were several times that exiles were pulled out of Israel into Babylon. The very first time that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, extracted exiles from the Israelites, he took the best and the brightest, the smartest, the best looking, the aristocracy, the elite. He pulled them out, right? He said, let's bring them and incorporate them into the DNA of our people, and that'll be good for us. So he pulls them out. Daniel was one of those people, and he was pulled out as a a young man or an old boy, about 15-ish. He was exiled to Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah was not exiled. The prophet Jeremiah remained behind in Jerusalem to try to continue to bring a word of faithfulness to the Jews who remained there. They would not hear. Jeremiah had a lonely ministry of rejection. And he eventually, we believe, was martyred in Egypt by his own people who were tired of him. But he remained in Jerusalem prophesying against Jerusalem and their misbehavior For the the tenure of his ministry until finally the last Jews in Jerusalem fled to Egypt, which has its own spiritual irony, before Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. So they were not exactly peers, they were contemporaries, but now somehow we're to understand that the word of Jeremiah has migrated over walking distance thousands of miles into the hands of Daniel. He's reading the words of the prophet from way over there. And when he reads, he reads that God said they would be in exile for 70 years. Now, to give you a sense of timing, Daniel is not reading this going, Oh, man, we're going to be here for 70 years. He's actually reading this in something like the 69th year. Of the 70. In other words, when it gets to him, the word to him is the time is almost up. So the Daniel we're looking at, he enters Babylon, let's say 15. Now he's well into his 70s, receiving this word. the judgment of God is not going to last forever. That's what he hears. Almost his whole life has been in exile. And now he gets this message that the consequences of God have limit. That God is a God of mercy. And that's what drives Daniel to prayer. And this is what he says. Upon reading that, just listen to the posture. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he realizes that the consequences of God are not gonna last forever, and then he adopts this posture. Now, if we're trying to figure out how, like, Lord, we don't really, we're not good at repentance. We're not good at confession. How do we do it? Just note the posture. He turns his face to God, right? Because he knows God. He knows who he is. He, he can look to God, right? When we're beneath the the judgment of God, it's not that God hates us. It's not that he's just furious and angry with us and he doesn't want us to see. But, but Daniel knows, I can look to him. So he looks to God and he pleads for mercy, but he adopts this humble this humble stature, sackcloth and ashes. I mean, Say he's in his 80s. Like imagine this 80-some-year-old man in sackcloth and ashes on the ground. That's the posture for confession. I'm not saying you actually need to go find sackcloth and ashes. I'm saying you should not miss this. The one minute confessional prayer when you kind of come to your senses oh Lord I'm sorry I did that I'm not saying that's invalid I'm just saying it doesn't look like Daniel he makes himself low to reach the Lord this is a good pattern knowing that the consequences of God are not permanent, that God intends to bring us back. He, God always has a plan of restoration for his people. Always. All of his people, God has a plan of restoration for you. I'm not saying he's gonna make, take your mistake and make it like it didn't ever happen or he's gonna reverse time or anything like that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God has not abandoned you to the consequences of your sin. He has a plan of restoration for you and you can look to him and you can plead for mercy from him Humbly, expecting he'll hear. Which is what he does. He makes this prayer of confession. It picks up in the fourth verse. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, I just want you to hear this one verse O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Scholars look at this prayer of Daniel and they say it has this fashion. <clears throat> Sometimes some of you might have heard the acronym ACTS for prayer adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Okay, there's no thanksgiving in this prayer, it's a confessional prayer. So, but they say here's the adoration, then there's confession, and then there's supplication, asking God for forgiveness. They'd say that's the recipe for good prayer, okay? I am not, it is, it is a recipe for good prayer. What I want to encourage us is as we walk through, I want you to see the realness in Daniel's prayer. That when we almost begin to say, I see the recipe, but it's not like I check these things off to do, I need to adopt a humble posture and begin to just gently follow into the way Daniel does it and expect fruitfulness from it. And this first step here is adoration, right? God, you're great, you're awesome, you're a covenant keeper, and you're a steady lover, is what he says. You keep your covenant and your steadfast love for all those who love you. The purpose, the reason of of adoration up front, okay, the reason it's here in the recipe, the reason it's here is because how can you know how to ask something from the Lord if you don't have in your mind who he is on the way there? This time of adoration is a time for us to sit in who God is so that when we ask of him, we ask the right kind of God, the right kind of thing. You know how sometimes our our quick, flippant prayers can maybe discredit or be inaccurate on who God really is? God, why'd you do that? Have you ever prayed like that? Do you know who you just said that to? God, am I alone? Am I alone down here? Do you not care about me? You really want to pray? You sit in the fact that God is great and awesome and he keeps his covenant and he's a steady lover. You sit in that for a while. And then you say something. That's why this prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts the same way. How do we pray, Jesus says? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's adoration. In other words, before you get to any kind of ask, put God in front and allow it to shape the way you think. I don't mean as a recipe. I mean sit in it. Take some time in it. That's what he does here. And then he, in, he heads into confession in the fifth verse. Now, I'm breaking confession up into two ideas. In verses five and six, I'm going to call this kind of confession the admission of guilt. Here's what he says So he's praying to the awesome God, keeps his covenant who's full of steadfast love, he says this to him. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers and to all the people of the land. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've turned aside, we've rebelled, we have not listened, we've acted wickedly. That's what he says. In other words, Daniel is saying guilty. Not maybe kind of guilty there. We're guilty. Not, well, the the tone of my voice might not have been ideal, but did you hear what they said? Not that. Guilty. Not like, well, if you're going to call it a sin, I guess you might, not that. We sinned. We've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've turned aside, we have not listened. Can you I'm just saying, when you get to the notion of confession, can you hear from Daniel? This is how you know it's real, is there's nothing in Daniel's spirit that's trying to hedge with the Lord about his own righteousness. What is Daniel trying to salvage about Daniel? Nothing. He's wide open to the Lord. These six descriptives sin, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside, have not listened. They build, it's the way that Daniel is saying it's not that we did something wrong, we have been wrong by you a lot. You want to truly confess before the Lord? I'd say, when you can, because he is a merciful God who allows us to turn his face to him, I'd say, humble yourself. i humble yourself. Take a day off from work if you need to. We take days off for lesser things. Sit in it. Adore him. Really adore him. Just go through your mind all that he is. Lord, you made me. You love me. You're merciful. Just repeat his attributes. And then when you get to confession, resist the temptation of the inner man to be finite and discreet about what you did wrong. Forgive me for doing that thing. Its chances are, it's far bigger than you can even guess. And it's this body of things. Just open yourself up. Be suspicious that your sin is rather symptomatic rather than punctiliar. If your prayer is, Lord, forgive me that I did that, I know you're a forgiver, amen. And we've all done those. I just want to offer up that maybe that's a recipe and maybe you're not really doing the real thing. Here's the other side of a confession. It's verses 7 to 14, so it's a longer body of reading. I'm going to call this. So if the first one was the admission of guilt, I'm going to call this the acceptance of consequences. It's two sides of confession, right? I did wrong, and I have what I have coming to me is right. Okay? Listen to what he says. And I'm gonna. It's a longer reading, so bear with it. But hear the spirit in it. He says this: To you, this is verse seven, to you, O Lord, belongs. Righteousness, but to us, open shame. As to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in lands to which you have driven them because of their treachery, they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by our truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done. And He has not. we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O oh Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. The first confession is confession of guilt. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've turned aside, we have not listened, we've rebelled. And then this is, and what has happened, the calamity that has come upon us. Lord, you're righteous in bringing this calamity upon us. In fact, you warned us all through the lives and generations of Israel, with, through the prophets, through the law of Moses, through the teachings, you've tried to call us back to righteousness amidst it all, and, you, and yet we did not, it says, we did not entreat you. You're right when you judge. You have not let us down. You warned us. Is that in your prayer? After your prayer of adoration, Lord, you're great and you're awesome. You're a keeper of covenants. You love steady, Lord. You don't get tired of me. Can you then move into your guilt, and I am guilty, wide open guilty, Lord, and you're right, you're right in the calamity that would become fall upon me, lord, because you've you've set you've you've set your law up. That's what he's saying. I want you to note for a second the voice of this entire prayer. You hear it's the first person plural. It's we, we. It's a collective prayer. So Daniel's praying a collective prayer. It's corporate responsibility he's praying, which to me, this is a great and wonderful topic that is just scraping up against the series, which is this idea that all of the people are responsible for the sins of all of the people. Think about that. In this room, that is against our nature. You know, the idea of corporate responsibility is holding on to the church by its fingertips right now. And it, it, we haven't let go of it. The baby dedication this morning is a testimony to it. We, the church, bear responsibility. Baptism is a, is a testimony to it. Membership is a testimony to it. It's not been let go, but we have this hyper-individualistic sense of our spirituality that's not, not present in the Word. Can you have a sense that every act of iniquity that comes out of the people of God that all of the people of God bear some corporate responsibility there? That's big. We have, I think, in us, when we see sin happening, and it's over there, we regret it. We may grieve it. We may judge it. We may not confess it. We may not feel that we're responsible for it. Oh yeah, I see, that's a train wreck. I could have told you that was a train wreck coming. They hardly ever even came to church. I mean, my money was on that failure from the beginning. I should go to Vegas. You should get in sackcloth and ashes. We should and bear the shame openly. That's what he's saying. And the, this is it. I just want to side glance here just to see. And of all people, Daniel is the one saying this. This is what it frustrates me and exhilarates me at the same time. Daniel is praying this prayer. Of all the people to pray this prayer, Daniel is praying it. What did Daniel ever do wrong? He was like 15 when he got thrown into exile. I mean, he's one of the people in our mind and in our estimation could genuinely plead, look, I'm innocent. It was my father's generation and my father's father's generation. Like, I am the victim of their crime. And not only was he young when the judgment came, but can you find a, a better example of godly living than Daniel? The lions didn't for crying out loud. What a holy, faithful man. And he, he owns the sin. Man, how does that happen? It's a sense that sin cannot be in my house without me owning it. This is Daniel's attitude if the sin is in my people, then I must pray confessionally. This is how you know. This is how you know. Like, am I going through this as a recipe or am I sitting in this? Is it real, right? Is taking time to adore the Lord, taking time to posture who he is in front of, in front of the prayer. Just, Lord, every word that I'm going to try to say to you, even if I have to sit silent. Before I get a word, it's going to say accurately say to this kind of God, this great and awesome covenant-keeping, steady-loving God, and then to have no sense of boundary of your iniquity. No boundary. We just don't do that. We're so worried about drawing the jurisdiction of our innocence that we hate to confess any kind of wrongdoing. Daniel is neck deep. And sin that you and I would say he didn't even commit I last night I was sitting I was sitting before the word going, no one does this. No one and no one ever does this. this. does anybody in the Bible I'm thinking is anyone in the Bible like enduring the exile from his land accepts the sin of the people as his own and I mean, man, there's one other is Jesus (sighs) sent to a place not his own, took all of our sin and on the cross says, forgive them for they not know what they do. I'm just saying, you want to know if you're really confessing when all the doors that you protect yourself with, all the self-righteous defense mechanisms you have, when they're all unlocked and they're weighed wide open and you're just sitting here before the Lord going, Guilty. Guilty. That said, it's hard to believe what he does next. It's like the best place in the whole Bible. Verse sixteen. O Lord, (laughs) according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This, you ever been surprised by something you've done a thousand times? I'm reading this and I'm, I'm just meditating on all that Daniel's done, the way he's opened himself up. Lord, you're great. You're holy, you're awesome. You keep your covenant. You love us steady. You, you will not fail us. You send prophets to us and teachings to us and the law of Moses to us. You gave us every chance to come back and yet we've sinned and we've done wrong and we've rebelled and we've turned aside and we've acted wickedly and we have not listened. Time and again, we are, we are guilty upon guilty. We have nothing that we can commend. We have no defense Everything you would do to us is warranted and righteous. So will you forgive us? That's what he did. Will you forgive us? There is no religion on the face of the earth that is like this. None other. There is no religion that would allow you to expose your sinfulness so wide open just to let all of the ugliness out on the table so that the Lord can see and still give you the hope that you could turn in the mess of all of that and say, please, mercy. Mercy. Father, give me Mercy. this is how you know it's real. When he pleads for mercy, the glory of God is the purpose. <laughs> Did you see that? He says, listen, Lord, because of our iniquity, your name has become a byword among the people around us. In other words, this is when you sit with God and, his, and you appreciate who he is, You come out, even when you ask for forgiveness. It's not for you so that you feel better. It's Lord, restore me so that your name might be restored. It's Lord, show me mercy so that in me receiving mercy, the world might see your mercy. Make your name great in me and through me. Through your mercy, Is that not the Lord's prayer, by the way? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and then forgive us, right? There's the supplication. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And then there is this, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In other words, Lord, do what it is you do. This mystery of grace and forgiveness that you do work it in us so that your kingdom would be great. You know you may be doing this as a recipe if it's quick, if it's perfunctory, if you're being overly careful about what you did right and what you didn't do right, and if you just want forgiveness so that you feel better. We bear the mark of Christ and through our actions have made it a byword among our neighbors. Lord, restore that. Father, restore that in us. Father, forgive us of that. Make your name great. All right, one more thing. This is the best part. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill. Of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision from the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Okay, what he's saying is, while I was praying, Gabriel, the angel, came to me in swift flight. Okay, it's painfully obvious it was while he was praying. He said it in eight different ways. While I was in the other words, in the midst of this prayer, before the Amen had been uttered, before the old man in the ashes had risen. While his face was still pointed to the Lord and his demeanor was still humble, while his soul was still open and his grief and desire for mercy was still present in the prayer, while that was happening, Gabriel, the angel, shows up. Verse 22 He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel. I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? This This is God, okay? This is God. How hard is it to get forgiveness from God? Gabriel says, Daniel, the moment you plead, God on the throne said, go, bring it to him so that the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God shows up to Daniel in midst the prayer. That's what he's saying is God looked to the big angel and said, swiftly, get to Daniel. And this is what he says, At the beginning, 23, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. There's no other God like that. Nowhere. There's no other religion. There's nothing that does that. There's no God who cares about righteousness and truth and yet rushes grace to us in the middle of the prayer. I'm saying, You could accidentally do this as a recipe because I need to do adoration, I need to do confession, I need to, okay, where's a little sackcloth, toss a little ashes. You could make a habit of being perfunctory about this and maybe miss the message that Gabriel would have to bring to you. Or you could sit in it and have it before you say amen. God wants a contrite spirit before him. He wants us to know the consequences of our sin have an end. They are about to come due for Daniel. Forgiveness is there. It's to be had. Come on up, Andrew. We have time to reflect, to respond. Man, I hope if if, if you don't know Jesus... I would that you'd confess him today, but I certainly, that's not reasonable. that's my heart. I, I, would, I would that you'd be drawn closer. I would that myth, a myth you might hold about him would be dispelled. He's not angry. He doesn't have a stern finger. He sends grace to those who call. And I want to challenge you. I can't be the only one here who deals with confession. May we not be recipe Christians. May we be the real thing. Really. Can we open it up before the Lord? Lord, can we even own it? Can we own it on behalf of the church, Father? When there's failure in this fellowship, can we say us? Oh, Lord, is that possible that you could do that for us? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray to a merciful God. You allow us to raise our head to you. You remind us that consequences come to an end that you restore. You are a God of restoration. Lord, and you care about your children. You're great and awesome. You keep your covenant. You love steady. Lord, help us to not be ashamed when coming to you, Lord, but help us to open up expose ourselves so that you might heal us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.